as a kid, I think I was, I've been told I was tenderhearted and kind, um, but in reality, I was, I wasn't necessarily a troublemaker, but I always had my little deviances. I know that nothing will ever be able to get rid of Christ's love for me. Yes, I grew up in the church, and so I've always been kind of a goody two-shoes, and I've tried to fit in, and I think the thing that's changed the most since I was, or since I've put my faith in God is I don't have that stress of having to fit in or having a certain standard to reach, and so it's really, like I said, it's it's a big relief knowing that I don't have to be perfect and that God will accept me as I am. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so that verse really sticks out for me because it just, it is such a relief that I know that nothing will ever be able to get rid of Christ's love for me. And it's just, it's a constant reminder that someone is always there for me and I always have a shoulder to lean on and just a friend to talk to. I've also gotten like more extroverted and I'm willing to talk to people and open up to people and just be myself now that I know that I'm accepted. Right now I haven't been doing too good because I've lost two grandparents in the past couple weeks and so it's it's been a challenge but it's honestly really helped that I that God this is all in God's plan and I don't have to worry about what comes next or what I need to do. And it's it's just been it's made it a lot easier knowing that that God this is all in God's plan and I don't have to worry about what comes next or what I need to do. Um a few things I thank God regularly for is um well one my family because I know there are those out there who they either don't have a family or they don't have that that structure. And so yeah, I thank God for my family, definitely. Um, well, this church, this church has been a huge blessing for me. I've like, I've come so far just because of this church. And so I'm, I'm really thankful for that. It's the ability to go out and spread the news of God because there are those in other countries that they're not able to do that. They're not able to just openly pray and read the Bible because they're, they're scared of what people will do to them. So I find it interesting that someone who is so perfect and just is able to love a sinner like me and um, is able to accept me for who I am and just be loving towards me and loving towards everyone else. I think it's cool that there's someone who can love me for me.
So when Jesus died on the cross, he, I mean, he took all of our sins. He carried that weight of our sin and he made it, he made us able to go to heaven. Because we are sinful and because we are not good, I guess, um, we can't be with God. And so there's, it's like there's a valley between us and Jesus was a bridge. He made it he made it possible for us to, for us to cross that valley. Um, and so he took our sin and he, um, yeah, he made it possible for us to be with God in heaven. So when Jesus died on the cross, he, I mean, he took all of our sins. He carried that weight of our sin. Yeah, he made it possible for us to be with God in heaven. I'm Jonas Salo, and I am second. Well, good morning. I hope you were uh, edified. I hope that you found some uh, some enjoyment in watching Jonah's testimony. And uh, we'll have a couple more of those over the coming weeks for you, just to give you a taste of uh, what goes on in some of our the lives of some of our students, and just to uh, give God praise for what He's doing in the lives of our young people as well. And as we dive into week 7 of 10 of our Roman series, I think it's important that we're reminded of why we sought to study this book in the first place. Because I know there's probably some of you who have already gotten to the point of like, are you serious Romans again? How much longer can we be in this book? And it's natural for somebody who isn't a Christian, or even sometimes for those of us who are Christians, to ask ourselves this question, why should I care about a letter that some guy named Paul wrote to the church in Rome almost 2,000 years ago? And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first comes from Scripture itself in 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so if we believe, if we're a church who submits to the Word of God, then we have to be a church who submits to all of the Word of God. And thankfully, God gave us the book of Romans to teach us and to lift us up to help us learn about His gospel and some of the ins and outs of what our theology should be. But also because the unfolding of God's story was not just a singular event that was contained to antiquity, but is being continued even to today and points us towards Christ's magnificent return, which we believers get to look forward to. And uh, let's be honest, life has been difficult for many recently. And if we want to have real hope and peace that surpasses all understanding, then we have to know the truth about God and the truth that is revealed to us in Scripture, which is why we take studying the Bible so seriously, because we believe that the only eternal hope is in Jesus Christ our Lord, and we believe that He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. And so we find our hope in the truth of Scripture and not in the things of this world. And so we are blessed to get to participate in the the continuous unfolding of God's story in creation. And so we're going to look into Romans chapter 9 today and see where God's story was and a few different points in Scripture and then how that all comes together to points to us. But before we dive into the text today, I want to know by a show of hands, how many of you 
either saw or were alive, at least, when this, uh, as the Star Wars movies came out in the order they were released. Like, who saw episode four first and then episode five second? Okay, yep, a few of you. And some of you never saw it, but you're going to at least know what I'm talking about. You were there, you, were, you were, at least remember it. So something that I didn't realize as a child was how big of a deal it was that Darth Vader is Luke's father. I remember going to see episode three. That was the first episode, the first movie I ever saw in theaters when it was released. And so when I was a kid, I just kind of always knew that Darth Vader was Luke and Leia's father and that Luke and Leia were siblings. Spoilers, sorry, spoilers. And I just always kind of knew that. I thought that was normal. I thought people knew that because I didn't know how the story was for people who saw it in the way that it unfolded. But if you talk to people who were there, if you talk to those people who were really committed and they waited in line to watch episode five when it came out in the theaters, they'll tell you that was the biggest cinematic reveal in history, right? And I don't know if that's quite true. But people were shocked by that. People were so amazed. It was a big deal to everyone that Darth Vader was Luke's father. And I could never quite understand that myself because of my position in history. I benefited from getting to look back on the movies instead of seeing them released in their time. And all of that is to say, when we look back at certain points of Scripture, including Romans chapter 9, including the Old Testament itself, we have to take into account the fact that the people who Paul was writing to didn't have 2,000 years of Christian teaching or doctrine to look back on. They didn't even have all of what we now call the New Testament in which to find their answers. So the way that Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, before we even get to this text, we have to know that Romans 9 requires us to, in a sense, get out of our 21st century context and put ourselves in the mind of a first century person. So that's what we're going to do today. But I promise if you stick with me to the end, there will be an application for those of us in the 21st century as well. So if you open your Bibles or look up on the screen, we're going to start in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 9 this morning. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. The way that Paul is writing here in Romans chapter 9 presupposes some potential objections from both Christians and non-Christian Jewish people in Rome. So he's writing the letter of Romans, and in chapter 9, he's acting as if he knows the objections that some of the people receiving the letter are going to say. Because there are actually a lot of Jewish people in the city of Rome by this time, and the gospel had likely already arrived to Rome a number of years before that from some Jewish people who heard Peter preach 
in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, they had gone back to Rome. They had taken the gospel back to their synagogues. And the Christian church in Rome, especially among the Jewish people in Rome, was beginning to grow rapidly. And so by the time of Paul's writings, the demographics of the Roman church were probably still slightly in favor of Gentiles, right? Non-Jewish people. But there was quite a large Jewish contingency, Jewish Christian contingency present in the church as well. And Paul writes, assuming that there are some of these Jewish Christians and some non-Christian Jews who might hear this letter that will have questions like, wait, if Jesus is God and he's calling his children to himself, like it said in chapter 8 last week, like we talked about, then why aren't all of Israel, the first Israel being the people group, right, the Jewish people, not the place Israel, but the Jewish people group, why are not all of the Israelites becoming followers of Jesus. Because those are God's people, right? That's what they would have understood. The Jewish people, the people of Israel, those are God's people. And if God revealed himself in Christ, then why are not all of the Jewish people followers of Jesus? Wasn't the promise that they would be God's people, that all of Abraham's descendants would be saved by the Messiah from the line of David? Has God just proven himself a liar or someone who doesn't keep their promises? That's why it starts out in verse 6 the way it does, because Paul is assuming that there'll be some people in the church in Rome that have a problem. But Paul answers in a way that shows that the descendants, the people of God, is actually through Christ no longer limited to the ethnic group of Israel. In Paul's day, the question could be raised, how can Jesus have been the Jewish Messiah when so many Jews didn't think he was? If Paul is right, doesn't this imply that God's promise to save his people has failed? But Paul's answer is that Abrahamic descent is not primary, primarily a matter of ethnicity, and to share in Abraham's blessedness before God means rather to share in Abraham's faith in God. Paul goes to considerable length to explain that God is true to his promises, that no human action or inaction can derail his good purposes, and that God will never reject the people whom he awakens to faith. I took that from a textbook, so don't think that I'm smart enough to say those words myself. But essentially, Paul is saying, no, of course not. Of course not all of the people who descended from Abraham are truly going to be God's people because not all of Israel, the ethnic group, are the true Israel, God's people. And he backs this up in verse 7 when he said, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And if we read that and we don't recognize how much Paul's tying it to the Old Testament, we probably think, what does that have to do with anything? But that's actually a quote from Genesis 21. You probably remember the story, right? Sarah couldn't have kids, and so she tells her husband Abraham to conceive a child with her handmaid, Hagar, and that son who is born from that adultery's name is Ishmael. Ishmael's descendants are also made into a great nation, but they are not God's chosen people. And so Paul uses Ishmael as an example to say, just because someone is ethnically Jewish or a descendant of Abraham, those are the same thing, doesn't make them a child of God because even Abraham's firstborn son wasn't actually one of God's people. Abraham had a, had a son with Hagar and his nation and all the people who descended from him aren't God's people. So clearly, to Paul, ethnic 
Judaism does not make you one of God's people. And that would have been very offensive, certainly to the Jewish people who had believed for their entire lives that all they needed to do in order to be favored by the Lord was just be Jewish. And so because of that, a lot of people would have likely been offended that Paul was saying, you're not counted as one of God's children just for being ethnically a descendant of Abraham. And yet Paul moves into showing them that God righteously saves and chooses people based on his mercy and not their family status. And so I'm going to make a statement right now that might sound a little offensive, but it is worth noting. The true Israel in this passage is referring to all those who have been called children of God. And Paul here is referring specifically to how ethnic Jewishness does not make someone a child of God. And so I'm going to make a different but related point based upon Paul's reasoning, the principle that Paul is espousing. So the text itself doesn't directly say this, but I'm going to say this using the same principle as Paul. And I go to great lengths to explain what I'm doing because uh, I'm in seminary and I know that there are people who would just pick me apart if I tried to do this, uh, if I tried to do this without explaining myself. Just because you grew up in the church or in a Christian household or because your family was Christian never made you a Christian. Christianity was never something to be passed down by lineage. It wasn't, it wasn't ever called that. The principle here is that the promise of God, the promise that he would reconcile his people to himself, which we knew and we know has been done through Jesus Christ, is the ultimate determining factor in salvation and not what family you're from. Whether or not you have trusted in the promise of God that he saved you through his son Jesus Christ is what makes you a Christian and not where you were born. And that's offensive to some and then to me, I'm, great, I'm very grateful and thankful for that because I didn't grow up in a Christian household. And actually, I forgot to say this during praises and prayers, and she'll be mad that I'm doing this, but my, my, my Christian mom, essentially, Sue Atwater, is right over there um, watching me preach today, so I'm very thankful to have her with me. But I, I didn't grow up in a Christian household, right? I had people like Sue who led me in the faith when I was a young person. And so I'm thankful that my family lineage is not what determines my salvation, because if that was true, I wouldn't be standing in front of you this morning. And many Israelites thought that they had the right to be called children of the promise because of their family, and I think that attitude has seeped its way into modern Christianity. But it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, that to all those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not children born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Children of the promise are given that status as a result of God's faithfulness and not their family of origin. And that should be an encouragement to the Jews, and it should be encouragement to those of you who grew up in Christian households, and it's an encouragement to me and to those of you who didn't grow up in Christian households because your salvation has nothing to do with where you came from. And we move on and we can see this principle espoused even more by Paul picking up in Romans 9 verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And so here, Paul is giving another example to the hypothetical Jewish objectors that being called to God has nothing to do with their ethnicity or even their own efforts or their own attempts to get to God and is a result solely of God's good purposes. Now, both of the quotations here in verses 12, when it says, the older shall serve the younger, that's referring to Genesis chapter 25. In verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's Malachi chapter 1. Both of those are talking about nations, about big groups of people, and not just the individuals, Jacob and Esau. So the conversation is there to be had, whether or not Paul is using this passage to refer to individual predestination or a general calling upon those who are called to certain kinds of service in the kingdom of God. But either way, regardless of which side of that theological debate you find yourself on, or if you haven't broached that topic at all yet, either way, the message is true that God's promises, the dic- God, excuse me, God's promises dictate the outcomes of his people and not their works. And I think that should be a relieving message. Like, can, can we all just take a breath for a second? In the 21st century, in the world in which we live, when things are just go, 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 go all the time, like, I know what some of your family schedules are like, and I don't know how you keep your heads above water. And isn't it relieving that we can just pause for a second and go, the one who truly matters loves me not because of anything I can do or have done, but because of his good purposes. Can we all just relax and take a breath and rest in God's promises? And yet the promise of God is that it's not by works, it's by his favor, that it's by his promises that we'll find favor in his eyes. It's all because of his mercy and his grace. So I'm saying to you this morning, stop trying to work hard enough to be good enough for God because you're not going to get there and you were never called to get there. You just have to rest in his promises and then your good works can come out of that. And I think for all of us, I think one of the things that the church needs to do a better job of preaching to the people who are not here is the message that their salvation has nothing to do with anything that they can do, but everything to do with what God has done for them. It says in verses 14 through 16, is God unjust for all of this? Is God unjust because he chooses to show mercy to some and not others? And Paul says, not at all, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. If this passage doesn't make us have thankfulness and praise for the Lord, then I don't know what will, because it's almost too good to be true, right? I'm slightly sympathetic sometimes because of passages like this to people who say that Christianity is just something that exists to make people feel good. Because I know that they're wrong, right? But I can understand why you would think that because that passage just says that nothing that you can do and no matter how many times you've messed up, God is going to have mercy on you if he chooses to. And so I should give thanks and praise to the Lord because I know that I am not at all deserving of his mercy or his grace or his love and yet it's poured out freely upon me because he chose to. That in the body of Christ, none of us have any room to boast in ourselves, but only in Christ alone, because our salvation and our mercy and the compassion we're shown by God has nothing to do with me. And in fact, if it did have anything to do with me, then I wouldn't be getting any mercy or compassion. 
How can God be so merciful to a sinner like me? And so Paul is anticipating this this question. Is God unjust for saving some and not for saving others? And to Paul, the answer is clear. No. Because God created the idea of justice itself and anything he chooses to do is as a result of his mercy. And I understand that that makes some of us uncomfortable. And so I ask the same question that Paul asks in the text. Does this make God unjust? And Paul's answer is very, very clear, no. Because the truth of the matter is twofold. First, God created the very idea of justice and goodness. So anything he does is just and good because he determines what those things are. If you ever get the opportunity to define a word then you also get to define what fits within the categories of that word. And God didn't just define the words justice and goodness. He actually created the very concept themselves. So the only reason I have any idea what's just or what's good is because God chose to put that in my brain anyways. And the second one is that no one deserves mercy, and yet God bestows it upon his people because he is so loving. In reality, none of us deserve to have that mercy, and yet God gives it freely through the death of Christ on the cross. The grace of God is actually more manifest to us, more tangible. We should understand the grace of God even more because there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve it, and yet God has paid for it with the price of his own blood. And I understand that there's a, there's a tension between our, am I responsible for being saved or is God responsible for my salvation? I'm going to read this out of my, my little study Bible here. The doctrine of election, which we may not be able to fully understand, doesn't rule out human responsibility. The Bible is clear that God does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, that's Ezekiel 18.23, but wants all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth, that's 1 Timothy 2.4. At the same time, this verse emphasizes God's sovereignty in the matter. There's a, there's a tension in the Bible that many biblical readers in our day take issue with as if it has to be one or the other. I choose God or God chooses me, and they both can't go together. It has to be black and white. It has to be one or the other. I think that's a reflection of the culture that we live in today. It has to be this or it has to be that, and there's no way it can be anything in the middle. And yet, the Bible itself has no problem saying both of those things in conjunction with one another because when we're trying to comprehend the God of the universe, our human capacity and our human reasoning ultimately falls short. I don't know if you know this or if anyone's ever told you this, but God's a little smarter than you are and a little smarter than I am too. One, one example that helps me trust in God's promises when I can't understand it exactly is to think about a stained glass window. Because if you walk up to a stained glass window and put your eye up against it, all you're going to see is a couple broken specks of different colored glass that look like they have no reason being anywhere around each other. And yet, the farther back you step away from that stained glass window, you get to see the magnificence of that artistic piece come together because you get a better perspective. And so understand that when you don't understand stuff in the Bible, that's okay because you and I have our faces pressed against the glass, but there will come a day in eternity where God will show us the entirety of the masterpiece. And you and I will get to go, oh, God, I'm so thankful you did it your way and not my way. I'm so thankful you saw everything even when I could see only a little. So as we continue on in verse 17, 
of Romans 9, Paul's going to make use of a couple Old Testament examples. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does, the potter have, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. We have to be reminded here of Paul's purpose in Romans 9. No human action or inaction can derail God's plans or invalidate his promises, and that should give us a lot of reason for joy. Because Paul uses first the example of Pharaoh. Many of you have heard that story, right? Pharaoh repeatedly told the Israelites that they could leave Egypt, and then he would change his mind, and the Bible says it hardened his heart, and then he would keep the Israelites in slavery. And Paul makes a couple of points using this story. First one is one that's hard for some of us to swallow. How can you who are not God question God? Right? It should make us think of the story of Job. Because at the end of Job's life, God comes and says to Job, who are you to question me? Right? The whole book, Job has been saying, God, why would you do this to me? I did everything right, God. I was the most faithful person in all the land. Why would you do this to me? And actually, if you read it, it's kind of intense because God comes to Job and he says, prepare yourself like a man because I'm about to end you. And then he just goes in on him. And God says to Job, who are you to question me? Where were you when I formed the earth out of nothing and brought light to the darkness? Right? If you want to read an absolute smackdown in scripture, go to Job 38. And then Paul, Paul pulls on Isaiah 29 and 45 and says, because God is the creator or the potter, he's the one who gets to determine what he does with the clay and he's perfectly justified in doing whatever he chooses. And yet in doing whatever he chooses, God has to show his wrath towards sin to make it clear to the objects of his mercy, that's you and me and everyone else who would put their faith in Christ, that even though they rightfully deserve wrath and are destined for destruction, he has treated us instead with patience and mercy for the purpose of his glory. That rightfully we should be called objects of wrath and instead through the promises of God our identity has completely changed to be called an object of mercy. And a side note to that is if you're struggling going, what is my purpose in life? Romans 9 makes it very clear that for all of those who have been created in the image of God and all throughout Scripture, your purpose is to give God glory. The specifics will fall into place only after you have the primary correct. And that's a struggle for people of all ages, right? It's not just college students or those who are about to go to college. It's not just young professionals, but for everybody, right? People in all stages of life, the specifics of your life's purpose will fall into place only after you've accepted the true purpose for all of those who, have God, who God has created, and that is that your purpose is to give God glory. Because God is so gracious that even though we were dis destined for destruction, he chose to treat us with patience and mercy. And it's not even because you're good, it's just because he's good and because he loves you. And once you acknowledge and understand that, you become a dangerous enemy to Satan. 
Once you understand that the goodness and love of God has been poured out upon you only because of his sovereignty and nothing to do with your own effort or goodness, you become dangerous to the works of the enemy in the world today. Because one of the ways that he works and one of the ways that I've seen him work in the lives of of you and the lives of me is by being the accuser. Scripture frequently refers to Satan as the accuser. And he tries to put himself into spaces where he does not belong and accuse you of your sin and of not being good enough for God or not being good enough for the people around you. And yet, for those who understand Romans 9, our answer to the accuser is, you're right. You're right, Satan, I'm not good enough. You're right, I messed up in this area and I messed up in this area and I let people down over here. You're right, and yet you have no power over me because my confidence is not in my own goodness, it's in the promises of God. And when God looks at me, he says, you're a child of the promise. That even though I was destined for destruction, I have now been treated with patience and mercy. And I think some of us are letting Satan win the battle because we get so down on ourselves when he starts to accuse. And yet, we have to be reminded that our greatest tool in the fight against the accuser is not ourselves, but it's the blood of Christ. That says, yeah, you're right, I will never live up to what I should be, and yet I don't have to because when God looks at me, he sees his perfection and not my sin. Who do you think I am, Satan? I'm not my savior, I'm not my own Messiah, and thankfully, I'm still redeemed. And that kind of power in the name of Jesus sows seeds of destruction in the tactics of the enemy. Because when our confidence is in the Creator and not in ourselves, Satan has no power over us. He's powerless in your life, so stop letting him have a foothold to sow discouragement because your identity isn't in your goodness or your striving, it's in your status as a child of God. All right, we're going to close with a passage of Scripture from Romans 9, 25 through 29. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. So we talked about what God's promise means for us, and for anyone who would accept Christ and become a child of the promise, And I think some of us are afraid to fully submit because we read stuff in the Bible from a guy like Paul and we think, wow, I could never be that faithful to God. Or maybe more realistically for you, you see someone in the pew next to you or in front of you or behind you or you see someone on your social media and you go, I could never be as faithful as that person. I could never do the good things for the kingdom of God that that person does. I will never have the relationship with Jesus that my friends do, so maybe I'm not good enough for God at all. I don't read the Bible as much as this person or I've sinned way more than that person, so there's no way that I could really truly be a child of the promise. Or maybe my friend is such a sinner I could never invite them to church because there's no way they would ever come to faith in Christ. You know why it's so good that we can trust in God's promises and not our own abilities? 
because we get to see things like what I get to see on a weekly basis. When there's a student who comes to me on a Wednesday night, just this past Wednesday night, and says, you know, I don't believe a word of what you or the Bible has to say. I don't believe any of it. I've been coming here for two months now. I don't think I believe a word of it. And we talk about that a little bit, and then as soon as the conversation over is, I, is over, I go, so will I see you next week? And he goes, yeah, see you next week. I'm not saying I know the future, but I'm telling you right now that I know that kid's future. Because I trust in the God of the promise. The God who says, even when you haven't yet believed in me, I will work my sovereignty in your life. So that for whatever reason, that kid wants to show up to youth group on a Wednesday night, not believing a word that I or the Bible have to say. And yet I know where that story's going. Have you ever actually read in the Bible the people that God chooses to work through and call to himself? Like in this passage, Paul quotes Hosea. You know what Hosea did? He had to marry a prostitute because God told him to. And then she ran back to prostitution and became someone's slave. And God made Hosea go and buy her back out of slavery, even though she was already his wife, because God wanted you and me and the people of Israel to see Hosea's situation and see an example of the fact that even though we are already his people, created in the image of God, that he would pay whatever price it took to buy us back. That's an imperfect man with an imperfect situation, and yet God's working through it. What about Balaam in Numbers chapter 23? He's this enemy. You've probably heard the story of the talking donkey. He's an enemy. He's been hired to put a curse on God's people, and then God makes it in his great sovereignty and his great promise that no matter what Balaam says, no matter what comes out of his mouth, all he can do is bless Israel. The, the enemies of Israel have to say, can you just stop talking because we hired you to put a curse on these people and you just keep making their life better. And he goes, I can't stop because it's what God's doing. It's God's sovereign promise to his people. What about Paul? You know the guy that wrote most of the New Testament, the, the guy who wrote the book that we're studying right now? You know that he killed Christians for fun? For those of you who don't think that you're good enough, did you wake up this morning regretting the times that you used to persecute Christians for fun? Probably not. He dedicated his entire life to the destruction of the followers of Jesus and the church of God. And yet God chose to work through that guy. In one moment on the road to Damascus, God brings together the entire promise and plan for Paul's life that Paul himself said had been there since his birth. God, are you sure you're going to call that guy? God, are you sure you're going to call me? What about Abraham, the father of the covenant to Israel, the spiritual ancestor of God's people? That's everybody in this room. He sold out his wife to other men twice so that he wouldn't be murdered. David, the man after God's own heart, he was a murderer, an adulterer, and a pretty crummy father. And you think you're going to somehow disqualify yourself from the promise that God has for you? I think that because I didn't come to Christ until I was 16 or 17 years old, that that disqualifies me from the call that God has placed on my life. Look in Scripture and be reminded that none of those people were good either. That the Bible goes to great lengths, and I'm stealing this quote from a documentary, that the Bible goes to great lengths to paint every character in Scripture as flawed except for one. It doesn't make sense. And yet, 1 Corinthians 25, and I promise I'm done, says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. 
Brothers and sisters, I'm saying this to you right now as I read it out of the Scripture. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you noble by birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. There are around 7,147 promises from God to his people in the Bible, and all of them can be summed up in one promise. All of them can be summed up in one person who includes all of them, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. There are so many promises in Scripture, and they all come together of the promises of the Messiah, the promised King, the promised Savior, the Redeemer himself, that even though you are rightfully dead in your trespasses, that even though you should be called a child of wrath, you are now called a child of the promise of God if you've accepted his Son. That's what it means in John 3.16 when it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Because oh, the promises of God, they're unfailing, unwavering, and completely undeserved and yet offered to you freely and forever if you would put your trust in the inheritance that is available to you in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I ask you today, where are you putting your trust? Is it in a broken promise of something that the world tries to give you to fill the God-sized hole in your heart? Or are you going to trust in the one who has promised you from before the day you were born? That you're his. And that he is for you and not against you. Are you going to rest in the love of God this morning and stop relying on the things of the world? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that even though we are completely undeserving, even though we mess up, even though we stray, even though our circumstances feel broken, Lord, that you're a sovereign God who's in control of all, that you choose to show mercy to those who you choose to show mercy. You choose to show compassion on those whom you have compassion on. And we thank you, Lord, that this morning we stand before you in this place as those who are called children of your promise. That I don't deserve mercy and I don't deserve compassion and I don't deserve patience and yet you bestow it upon me freely and you've been showing throughout your word from the very beginning of creation that you would do so. So let me not rest on the things of today. Let me not rest on the world around me, but let me rest upon the truth of your word that is from the very beginning of time that you knew you would send your son not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so I thank you and praise you for my salvation, for the salvation of those who would be called your children this morning. And we ask for those of us in our lives who do not yet know those promises, those 7,000 plus in Scripture, that you would make us bold for the sake of your gospel this week, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in your heavenly name. Amen. All right. Would you please stand?
I'm getting bad at staying to 10 o'clock, but thankfully Mike's preaching next week. This week, may you go out, may you be blessed, may you trust and rest in the promise that God has for you. That whatever the world might say about you, whatever your family of origin says about you, that none of it matters in comparison to the glory that is yours in Christ. So God bless you this week and trust that you are not a child of wrath, but you rightfully are a child of promise. May you go in peace. Amen.